0: Welcome to Trial Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers in the United States. We simply have great lawyers, tell great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. So let's get started. To be sitting with Eric Gancy, who is a wonderful guy and an excellent trial lawyer who practices in San Diego, California, whose practice is really that of a trial lawyer. And Eric does a lot of DUI cases, but that's just one aspect of
1: his practice. Eric, thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Scott. I've been following your podcast for a while, so it's it's neat to be on this side of the microphone. Well, I'm glad you're here.
0: Can you share with us a story of a case that had a profound impact on you?
1: Sure. There was a case that uh, I just, I just did just a handful of weeks ago, right before I came here to the ranch. Um, And it, it had a profound impact because of the cases that led up to it. And then that case. So this current case that, that I'll talk about and it ended up being a not guilty verdict across the board, which you know is always what we're striving for to win. But it comes on the back of three trials where I just got my teeth kicked in, to be honest. And factually those cases were good cases. And and I don't agree with some of the verdicts that or all of those verdicts that came down. And it came from a point of I feel like those other three trials and they all happened very close in succession with each other, like week, three weeks altogether. <laughs> so boom, boom, boom. And the knowledge of I'm losing these cases, the jurors, like some of the jurors in one of the cases stuck around and were making all of my points for me. Like, you know, I think that there was doubt here and here and here, but we convicted. And just the realization of what, what am I doing and just constantly trying to reevaluate as we do within TLC and in life just trying to reevaluate what am i doing how are the jurors perceiving the information because they they received the information and they acted on it they just acted completely in opposite of what i was hoping that they would act and so it was the, the work to just try to try something new in this this last trial that i just did um, i'll just say his first name his name is Shane without giving him you know, disclosing the full case name, but with with Shane's case. And that was getting to work with, there was uh, three three buddies from San Diego, they're all TLC. That was um, Elliot Young and Renee Galenti and Jeff Dingwall. And I reached out to a, a small group just to be like, hey, I, I need a little bit of um, brutally honest love. So can I share with you what I did with these three trials? Because it was a very similar approach to all three of them. And I just want to see from your juror perspective, how you connected with it. And that connection may be Hey, we liked what you did, but we didn't agree with you. Or, Hey, we think that you're a big jerk face and we totally don't agree with you. So, um, it was the, the working group with just talking through some things and basically the, the resounding thing that they were telling me is we know that, you know, we get a sense that you care about what you're doing and that you understand what you're doing and that you're proficient and all that, you know, stuff but you're not telling us a story and it's really hard for us to follow what you're talking about because we don't have a story to latch onto. And so, you know, we went back and forth about well, what, what could be the story of the case because factually DUIs tend to be a little bit drier. You know, that there's a, a stop and then some field sobriety test and then, you know, some sort of chemical analysis. And sometimes there's stuff to play with, with the field sobriety test. Cause you know, everyone can picture if I was doing that, you know, how would I do that? But in the end game, um, in my opinion, DUIs are won and lost on the chemical number, and and so it was just trying to portray that in the concept of a uh, concept of how am I going to create a story within a DUI case. So, and I know I'm just talking, talking. So if you got any questions, man, just go ahead and and, and pop in. I will. Um, so I, I thought a lot about I have I worked a lot with TLC about how do I get different stories, and so the stories can be how the police officer treated you know my client. Or how my client maybe was really nervous or maybe had a, you know, really bad breakup and like maybe there's reasons why they were drinking and driving or, or maybe there's other stuff going on. But what do you do with the plain vanilla? The person just simply was hanging out with some buddies and drank too much and it's a low alcohol level and the cops were really nice to my guy, you know, like, what do you do with that? So then I started thinking based on that, that work with Jeff and Renee and Elliot with well, maybe the story could be hearing the story for the first time, and this was um, a, a concept that Marn had sent out. Marn Chalupka. Yeah, through, through, uh, through. She had emailed something out, and it talked about hearing music for the first time. And I'm, you know, obviously a, a big music person, and I think about listening to lots of different styles of music, and like when I put on, like, here's a good example. Sometimes in the morning, my girlfriend and I, we both go to the gym and sometimes I get back from the gym earlier than she does. And then if I start showering and we always play music at our place. And so I'll put on heavy metal because I really like listening to heavy metal in the morning and she comes in and it just sounds like a wall of noise because to her heavy metal just sounds like awful, <laughs> like the most horrific sound that you can hear in the morning. And Marne's sentiment through her email was just like, you know, sometimes when people hear music for the first time, they're just like blown away and they can't receive the information. And that's a lot of times what the jurors are dealing with in your case, when you're putting on your case. And especially with the UI cases, once you start cracking open the vault of like, you know, breath analysis and gas chromatography and, you know, numbers, 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 ranges of uncertainty. And so I started thinking that how would I feel if i was a juror without having you know all this scientific background that that i have worked for if i was hearing it all for the first time and i would want to be really evaluating the case and if i'm a juror and i've been sworn in you know my first thought that i usually read in the juror's eyes is like son of a bitch like i didn't you know how, how i didn't get out of jury service but now i'm here so i'm going to take it seriously And, and I really feel like many jurors really want to make the right decision. So they're hearing the information for the first time and they're really trying to see moving the needle based on the, what's the information that's coming out on the stand, the evidence that they're hearing, what do they want to decide? And I really think that, although I think that reasonable doubt, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a really foreign concept. I really think that people want to make the right decision and they know that they just have to be, you know, proven a certain amount before they're going to convict somebody. So the story became, if I was a juror in this case and I'm hearing certain things, then how would I feel about that? knowing that my decision is, did I get myself to proof beyond a reasonable doubt or not? So uh, that story got woven into with the opening statement was just stating very briefly about what what was going to be, you know said. And like going through the field sobriety test, it just so happened that Shane did really well on the field sobriety tests. Um, and the driving, the driving was awful. Um, he almost hit a curb. Then, the, per the cop's testimony, then he almost hit another car. Like drove into the car's lane, and you know it's like late at night. And they see my guy leaving a bar, and then he gets pulled over. And then he does the field sobriety test, does perfectly fine, and then he blows before arrest a point oh nine, point oh nine breath, and the legal limit in California is 0.08. And then at, after arrest, he blows a point oh nine, point oh nine. Hmm. Okay. So then through my cross examinations, then I'm going through what the officer did and then understanding what the officer said about the driving. And so, you know, my cross examination is, you know, turning to the jurors, which generally I have a hard time. I know that Josh Carton talks about giving the story to the jurors, turning your body to the jurors. And that's been something that's very difficult for me. I feel like I have a strong or I have a, a, an awkward time doing that. And I feel like people are awkward when I do that to them. Like, whoa, buddy, like, why are you standing in front of me staring at me, you, you weirdo? But this was the first time that I, I did that with the jurors through cross-examination and through direct with, with my own expert. And I was just asking questions of like this. If I was a juror, I would want to know, boom. And then when I was asking, when I was saying it that way, then I would turn to the jurors and be like, if I was a juror, you know, and connect with someone, I would want to know, boom. And sometimes the jurors would be like, oh, like, give me the eyeballs like, oh, that is a good question. Or yeah, I was thinking about that. So that became cross examination of just kind of putting the story together. Then, um, I went through and it just so happened that the police officer did, there's a a field sobriety test that can be done called the horizontal gaze nystagmus test, which is where they follow the tip of their pen with your eyeballs and your eyes only. And it just so happened that the officer, uh, didn't do the test the right way and two times he didn't do the test the right way and but yet his testimony oh and he did it wrong and it was on video bad idea so his testimony was per direct examination from the prosecutor was i gave him the hg and the horizontal gaze nystagmus test and in doing so i saw all the things that i'm supposed to be looking for but on the video There's no freaking way that he could have seen those things because he did the test really wrong. And so there's a lot of science about how you're supposed to do the test. And if you don't do the test, then it's an invalid administration of the test and the officer just didn't do it the right way. So then in my cross-examination, this is TLC stuff you know, reversing roles with him. Who is he as a police officer? And he's, he was like campus police for a little while and then now he's like a, a sergeant or someone high up the food chain within the police department within San Diego PD, and he wants to do the right thing, and he's very polite to my client, and he was, and he parked his car instead of towing it, so he did a lot of things that were right, so he wants to do the right thing, but he's in a position where he thinks that he's doing the test the right way, and he's training other officers, and so it was not that he, if, if he knew that he was doing it wrong, would he change how he's doing it? Because it's not just him doing it in this particular case. It's like all the cases that he's doing, all the arrests that he's doing, and also, all the other police officers and their contacts that they're doing. Yo! <laughs> so, that's a big deal. So, then I, I talked him through how you're supposed to do the test. And then locked him into the, you know, you're, you're telling us a, an an underscored testimony that you saw all six clues. You saw all the clues for HGN. Yes, yes, yes. All right. And then I showed him the video. Now, why he hadn't watched the video ahead of time and why he was agreeing with me with everything about the proper administration for HGM when he hadn't done it, I don't know, unless he was just you know, scared or not thinking properly. But he said all that, those things under oath and then I played him the video and then it became, you, you already told us how you did that. And again, it turned into the story. If I was a juror, and this is my question, if I was a juror, I would be wondering why you told us that you saw all the clues when there's no way that you could have seen the clues. So can you explain that? And then, you know, that was a difficult question for him to answer. And then the next question to ask is, and this is the, um, giving him the option to really better himself because I really feel like he wants to be better. I said, now that you know how you, how to do this test the right way, will you go back and revisit how to do it? And, you know, many lawyers would say, you know, many lawyers outside of TLC is, oh, you cannot, you would, would never ask that question. You can't ask that question. You know, in TLC, it's like, you know, BS, you ask whatever you want to ask. It's part of the story. And of course, the prosecutor's like, objection. And at that point, like, I don't care if he if he answers the question or how he answers the question, because if he says, no, I'm not going to revisit it, Then then he's a jerk. If he says, yeah, I am going to revisit it, then he still did it wrong for this particular case, but now... I'm not being a jerk to him and he gets a chance to really be better. So the judge overruled the prosecutor's objection. Then she said, you know, you can answer it. And so then I got a chance to ask the question again, because all it did was just amplify it. This is why Jerry Bosch teaches. he, He did this thing years ago that I saw him do. Um, when people object and like, I just, lo- I, I used to hate objections, but like now I just love it because all it does is just, it just wakes up the jurors and just points out like, Hey, they're pissed off. They don't want this question answered. And so like now they're going to answer the question. The jurors are like, what's going to happen? So then I, and then I get to re-ask the question, even though I didn't have to, but that's the theater, you know, so I got to re-ask the question and then he answered the question. He's like, yeah, I am. I'm going to go back and, and revisit how I'm doing HGN. And that was really, I, you know, that was good of him to, to say that. So that was, and then we, there was some stuff about the chemical test that, um, in California, uh, the, the alleged crime is what was the alcohol level when you drove? That's one of the parts of a DUI. And so this was considered a rising defense case. And there was a lot more with math about ranges of uncertainty. And he was using all the ranges. He technically would have been like a 0.081% alcohol, but that's like 30 minutes after driving. So the question is, what was he at the point of driving? And then I had my own expert explain how there's so many unknowns with alcohol absorption and elimination and, you know, that kind of stuff and be very credible about it. And it was TLC with my expert, getting him off the stand, having him be very professorial, using charts, talking us through different diagrams and really just trying to make it like a dialogue and just really making it like a like a um, like a DUI 101 collegiate class, you know, in, in like 45 minutes. But getting him off the stand just to like, you know, show the jurors like, well, wow, at least something's interesting that we're going to learn the concept in a different way. But then what was neat is that when I did um, the closing is that rolling through the story of I just told the jurors. uh if I was in your shoes in a, or in your seats and, and I'm listening to this, this is where I would be feeling. So I started off with, you know, we know the presumption of innocence. And I started off with the, the bar where the jurors are sitting. This is presumption of innocence. And then beyond all reasonable doubt, is way back where the wall is, And they need to get you there in order to, you know, get a conviction on this case. Okay. Now, the first thing that I heard from the police officer would be, was the driving. And the driving sucked. If you believe the police officer, the driving was awful. So I'll be honest that I'm hearing that. And I would take, you know, I moved about halfway down and I would, I would probably put myself here because I know that he was arrested for DUI and I know that charges are brought and I know that, you know, this driving can be indicative of someone that is, you know, possibly impaired by alcohol. So I would put myself here and then I rolled through each of the field sobriety tests. So then we learned about the HGN and when I heard it from the prosecutor's end and she said, he saw all six clues. That's all the clues. That's consistent with alcohol being over 0.08. That's consistent with being impaired by alcohol. Then I would maybe be thinking, taking a step back towards convicting this guy, but I would want to wait just a second because obviously this case is here for a reason. We're at trial. Maybe there's more to it. And then once I heard that HGN was done wrong and at no point in this trial, did the prosecutor ever concede that point, Then I'm telling the jurors, this was my closing argument. Once I'm hearing that, then I'm definitely not moving towards guilt. And in fact, maybe I'm taking a step towards innocence. And now I'm not starting to trust the process a little bit. And um, that was a different way for me. Like the other trials that I did, I have a real problem when people are saying inaccurate stuff with the science and DUIs. And a lot of times the arguments become, they didn't tell you this, and I had to bring that out. And imagine if I hadn't brought that out. And I think that that turns people off just because I'm a tall dude. And, you know, you, you, you run the risk of being like super smarty pants. I know it all. And, uh, so, but it it was a different way of saying, this is what I'm hearing. If I'm a juror, I'm just trying to evaluate everything. And if I'm not getting accurate information, then I'm, this is how I would feel about it. And that's honestly how I would feel about it. So then I went through the other field sobriety tests and like I did. It was, it was hands down the best performance that I've ever seen on video or or otherwise with field sobriety tests, even people with zero alcohol in their system. Um, so I definitely wouldn't be moving back towards guilt. Maybe I would be taking, maybe I would be staying still, or maybe I would take a step towards innocence and then talked about the numbers and how the numbers that we have, the breath numbers in this case, is there a possibility that he could be over point Yeah. Is there a possibility that he could be under a point of or at a point of weight, yeah, all that's reasonable. And so, you know, that again, wouldn't get me to guilt. And so that became the entire story for the trial is if I was a juror, what would I do? And, you know, and the jurors afterwards, um, it was so striking because they, they stuck around and they didn't care at all. Like they, they were taken all, like it was closing the loop in, in, in building the tribe and all that stuff that we're taught here, at TLC. And they were really champing for my client. And like, there was like 10 jurors that stuck around out of the 12 that we get in California for misdemeanors um, and felonies. But, uh, they were all saying like all the arguments that I had given, like all the story that I was telling, but then they were also implementing their own parts of the story about like the bad driving. And usually jurors would be like wanting to burn someone at the stake for any kind of bad driving for many good reasons. Um, but these jurors were instead were saying, and I couldn't believe this, they said, maybe he was driving that way because he was on his phone. And I was like, most people, if they even think that you're on their phone, then they doubly want to, br- they want to burn you at the stake, and then they want to take you again and burn you at the stake, at another stake. And the fact that they just, it really, like, they just didn't care about that. And then there was a handful of jurors that really didn't believe the police officer because he had already lost a lot of credibility with, with, uh with not doing the HGN eyeball test the right way. So it was just a really, it was a really proud moment of just taking the TLC methods and just really trying to implement something and, and having it work.
0: Well, it's interesting because we tell our trial stories and the jurors have to hear them and understand them. So a lot of our colleagues will reverse roles with the jurors and try to Feel throughout the trial what the jurors are receiving but you have built directly into the heart of your case your trial theme the jurors perspective
1: and that's brilliant thanks man yeah and it was it's just a collaboration from I mean having so many wonderful TLC people just around you know it's it's like a group effort with everything
0: now you mentioned earlier that you feel often in the past, at least, uncomfortable looking at the jurors and talking to the jurors. Where does that come from in Eric Gansey?
1: I don't... I don't... Let me see if I can break it down because I don't know that I've ever answered this question. I don't. I don't think it comes from a point of looking at people or, like, presenting or talking with people. But it comes from a point of when I've done it, I got body language and just kind of a vibe that people really didn't like it. And it comes from a point of, you know, I have a teaching background and just knowing if I was teaching a concept and just having a feeling of either someone's not taking in the information the way that I would want them to, or they really just aren't, aren't vibing with what I'm doing. And when that happens, you, you gotta change something because you want them to receive the information. So it just comes from the, that background of just knowing that something's not working.
0: <laughs> so what changed? In other words, this time when
1: you did the same thing, it clicked. Maybe it was that, that I'm trying to talk with them. I, I, I have a bad habit and I have had a bad habit of talking at people a lot, especially with like all the sciencey stuff. But this time it was really just trying talking with them or talking With them, but also for them, because, you know, the jurors just sit there and, you know, most judges don't let them ask questions, but maybe it was trying it that way and just having it kind of be like, you know, you're, you're, you know, TLC teaches that you're, you're leading the tribe. And maybe, maybe I was the leader of the tribe at that point.
0: It almost sounds like you were connected with them in advance by figuring out what they'd want to know, what they'd want to learn and what they're feeling and why they not, might not connect with someone the way you were presenting before, you went through a process of connecting with them so that when you're in the courtroom, you'd already sat in their shoes, and maybe you had the confidence or the connection to be able to just tell the story. Yeah. Now, you also mentioned music to sort of illustrate the concept of how people have to be ready to hear something and To focus on actually how they're hearing it. I Know you're a drummer and a musician. How does your Musicality Influence or affect your lawyering?
1: Well, first of all, let me say thank you for calling me a drummer and a musician (laughs) It's nice to hear the terms synonymously. Drummers can be musicians. Uh, it's it comes from a, a an angle of performance, and and it's again how people are are receiving the performance, and you know there, there's been lots of times where I've where I've done well, here's an example. So I like the few times the times where I get to do drum solos. I, I say a few times because I haven't done a drum solo in a while um, because I play in a karaoke band, a live band, karaoke group, and. Like people are up there just saying not to hear the drummer, you know, wipe it out. But uh, I, I've always been in tune with when I'm playing a drum solo, how the crowd reacts to it. And so many times the crowd would react where they would either just, they're like, oh, drum solo, like tuning it out. And then they, unless, and they're talking to their buddies and like starting, you know, just having beers or ordering more beers at what, what point. So, and I've always just like, that creates an energy in the room and it definitely creates an energy within me. So that's one piece of it. Just seeing how people are reacting to whatever kind of performance that you're giving them or teaching them or whatever. Um, it's also like a noise thing too, that I know that when I hear drum solos or just tunes in general, if it's a lot of noise coming at me without like a melody or something that I can latch onto, Mm -hmm. then, um, then it's just too much. Like my brain just kind of checks out at a certain point. And, uh, so there's just a, a lot of different musical concepts. You know, we we did a piece. Um, I, I get the, the privilege of editing the Him and Haw Warrior article where we talk about music and like our TLC connections with music. And so one of the things that we wrote on, and some people else, some people wrote in on it, was talking about silence in music. And Jesse Wilson talked about this topic, and that's so true when you're presenting, just talking that sometimes people just need to hear silence and it doesn't always need to be like a super dramatic pause after like a big point that you're trying to make. But sometimes people just need to hear just a little bit of a, of of a, of a break just to kind of reset, recalibrate their minds and then be ready for the next thing that you're about to talk to talk about. So yeah, lots of different musical concepts, but also like pacing and phrasing. This just all goes to like, how is the audience perceiving like taking in like what you're giving them. Say more about that pacing and phrasing. Uh, It's in line with um, uh, hearing a melody with something. And uh, let me see if I can try to appropriate this. Being able to hear things in, in sound bites so that you can remember it and react to it. And then if there's going to be a reaction, then pausing and then letting that reaction sink in so that it's not just like you're just vomiting all over their face. Um, it's also akin to like comedians. And if you ever hear about comedians talk about when they play different rooms, um, if they do their, their stand-up act in different venues, that sometimes there, there can be a delay with how they're pitching the joke or hitting the punchline or whatever versus how the audience is reacting to that. And so there's like pauses. You know, it's just like stuff that you need to be aware of. And it's just all in line of, of how, how people are, if they're able to hear what you're saying, can they hear the melody? Are they connected to the melody? And then give them a little bit of time, maybe, to appreciate the melody. So, those are just a few musical concepts that I can think of right now. It seems that there's
0: a theme in a lot of what you're talking relating to listening to the jury or listening to the folks that are receiving the messages we're putting out, whether it's as a musician or as a lawyer, but tuning in and paying attention to them while you're communicating with them.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: You know, Eric, we get questions all the time from young lawyers who are seeking advice on what they can do to become a better lawyer. What's... What advice do you have for young lawyers out there?
1: Mm. Ooh, open up your hearts, open up your minds, really, really be open to learning new things, to trying new things, to failing at new things because you learn a lot more from failure usually than you do with winning, or at least I do, to getting a group of friends, colleagues, you know, family, whatever, focus groups that aren't going to bullshit you and just really shoot straight with you. Uh, because if someone's just singing your praises all the time, then you're just, you know, it it may or may not be good, but you really need to hear brutal honesty about how people are really reacting because when you get jurors or you get judges and especially whenever they get to put their thoughts in writing where they can commit it without you being in their presence, then, um, then, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Then we're talking about advice for young lawyers and having
0: a group of folks around. So
1: you just need to get used to how people are really reacting and that they're going to shoot straight with you because that's what jurors are going to do. That's what judges are going to do. And people, that was the point I was trying to make. Sorry about that. Um, is that people have an easier time writing things down as opposed to telling it to your face. Even if they're going to write down a verdict, that's like, you know, defense verdict or guilty verdict or whatever. Um, You just need to get, and they may be doing that because what you're doing is not really gelling or not working for you or isn't true for you, but just get people that are really going to be straight with you.
0: Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. You've really provided a lot of insight and guidance and wisdom and thanks on behalf of your clients and
1: the folks you teach. And thanks for being with us. Hey man, I appreciate you doing this podcast and bringing us all together. Thanks Scott. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, a Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people. And it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.